Welcome to the Global Research News Hour Summer Series. My name is Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a weekly public affairs broadcast produced at CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada, on occupied Anishinaabe territory on the homeland of the Metis Nation, in partnership with the Center for Research on Globalization. Our shows air on partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States and are podcast at the website globalresearch.ca. This week, we air a talk by Michelle Chosodovsky on the globalization of war. The talk was delivered in Regina, Saskatchewan on June 8, 2018, and organized by the Regina Peace Council. Professor Chosodovsky argues that the attacks of September 11, 2001 triggered a hegemonic project by the U.S. NATO military apparatus, which has seen military operations deployed in every region of the planet. The global war on terrorism has been coupled by covert intelligence operations, economic sanctions, and the threat of regime change. All while nuclear weapons have been normalized as legitimate arsenal for use in conventional war theaters. Professor Chosodovsky also maintains that this diabolical agenda, as he calls it, is made possible by a compliant media and co-opted anti-war movements which misrepresent the U.S.-NATO foreign policy agenda. As he explains, there is no sustained questioning of the motives behind the war on terrorism or the doctrine of humanitarian intervention in countries like Libya or Syria. Professor Chosodovsky's presentation is based on research he compiled in a 2015 volume entitled the Globalization of War, America's Long War on Humanity, which is available through his website, globalresearch.ca. Professor Chosodovsky is Emeritus Professor of Economics at the University of Ottawa, founder and director of the Centre for Research on Globalization in Montreal, and editor of Global Research. He is the award-winning author of 11 books, including The Globalization of Poverty in the New World Order from 2003, America's War on Terrorism from 2005, Towards a World War III Scenario, The Dangers of Nuclear War from 2011, and The Globalization of War, America's Long War Against Humanity from 2015. Here is Professor Chosodovsky speaking to the Regina Peace Council on June 8, 2018. The title of, of, this, of my lecture tonight uh, was... Uh, was called The Globalization of War, China, Russia, Iran, North Korea. Now that might seem to be a rather unusual title that I would list those four countries. I list those four countries because the United States is involved in World War III scenarios, which go back at least 10 years. We do not, we're not privy to everything which has been done within the US military. But in 2007, the Pentagon um, had an exercise which was called Vigilance Shield. And it was, in effect, a scenario of a Third World War. And it was the United States of America against four fictitious countries, each of which were called Churia, 
China, Rubek, Russia, Birmingham, Iran, and Nemazi, North Korea. And this is a very detailed simulation of what would happen. Now, the fact of the matter is that those four countries are absolutely strategic for the following reason. They are non-compliant. They are not, they are exercising their sovereignty and they are refusing to abide by U.S. foreign policy. That's the only reason that the games were in relation to those four countries. But once you understand the strategic importance of those four countries, you get a better understanding of, of the logic behind this military agenda. It's a global military agenda. It, it, is not a, it is not a sequence of separate operations. It's very well coordinated. There's a roadmap. And that is understood. I could say that in, uh, in the year 2000, prior to the inauguration of, uh, of uh, Ken, um, sorry, no, Bush, sorry, uh, slip of the tongue, George W. Bush, uh, there, the project of the New American Century, which is a U.S. Washington-based think tank, published a report where they acknowledged a number of concepts. First, they said the United States will wage simultaneous, large-scale theater wars in different parts of the world. And this was, was put within a military framework. There was no justification to these wars. We will wage simultaneous theater wars in different parts of the world. And that was part of what they called the long war, okay? Uh, the long war against humanity which is the subtitle of my book. But the term, the long war, is a Pentagon concept. But to get back to the PNAC's concept of the long war, they, they have, one, the statement with regard to simultaneous theater wars, and then there's a statement which pertains to what they call constabulary functions. Now, constabulary functions means, doesn't mean necessarily theater wars, but it might mean sending in special forces, regime change, a whole series of interventions, intelligence ops, um, economic sanctions. But these, well, the constabulary functions were really formulated as a military concept of, of, of policing countries through military and non-military means. And then the third, which is included in this list, is the revolution in military affairs, which essentially means developing new capabilities in the production of, of weapon systems, of advanced weapon systems. And mind you, that was really largely in support of the US military industrial complex and the large corporate conglomerates which re received these multi-billion dollar contracts from the Pentagon. 
So that is the, the, the background uh, uh, which currently prevails and which is important to understand um, what's going on in different parts of the world. And the war in Syria is very much linked to the next stage, which, is, which consists in threatening Iran. Uh, there is a roadmap. Uh, this was, was based on statements that General Wesley Clark made several years back, where the, a certain number of countries have been identified, uh, Libya, Syria, Iraq, uh, and so on. But in any event, this is a war. This is a war without borders. It is a, it is a war of conquest. But to sell this uh, to the public, you have to have quite a big army of media disinformation, uh, propaganda, where you actually present war as a as a peacemaking undertaking. Okay, and. Uh, Anybody who contests that, of course, is a conspiracy theorist. So, uh, but the, the, the logic, the explanations to justify this war inevitably are based on lies. You can't do it otherwise. Um, we're not waging a war of conquest. We're waging a war in, with a view to restoring democracy. Uh, we are going after the terrorists who are threatening our way of life, and so on and so forth. The fact that those terrorists are sustained and supported and financed by the US military, by, the, by Saudi Arabia, by the, by the Western Alliance, uh, is not something that you're going to read necessarily in, in the mainstream media although you have enough information in the mainstream media to, to connect the dots. Those terrorists are, are financed, trained, and, and, um, and they have Western military advisors embedded within. And of course, they have the NGOs who are involved, uh, as well as the media, in falsifying the truth. So what's happening in, in Syria today uh, is certainly not a civil war. It is an insurrection uh, whereby Al-Qaeda-affiliated entities, as well as ISIS Daesh, are uh, used as a means to destabilize and destroy a sovereign country. And this is not something which is acknowledged by the mainstream media. They will say Bashar al-Assad is killing his own people. Uh, the, uh, the rebels um, uh, are there, uh, you know, and uh, representing various uh, religions, etc. within, well, essentially Sunni versus Shiite and Alawite. Of course, they never mentioned the fact that the cabinet of Bashar al-Assad is largely made up of Sunnis. And it just so happens his wife is a Sunni, okay? Does that mean he's going to go out and kill his wife, okay? But the, you won't see this kind of, of logic. You won't, it, I, I, I spent two months in Syria before the war broke out. And um, 
It's a country of tremendous tolerance, religious tolerance. There's no, there was no sectarian conflicts whatsoever. There may have been political conflicts, but uh, what the media describes uh, is, a, you know, is the clash of, of ethnic groups and, and religions and so on and so forth. But in large part, these clashes are engineered, and they're engineered uh, by the Western powers and the, 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 the plans to intervene in Syria predate, of course, 2011 when the, when the war broke out. Now, I think we have to also understand uh, the broader implications as well as the economic and social implications of this military agenda. I think we must understand, first of all, we are at the crossroads of perhaps the most serious crisis in modern history or in world history, because the destructive capabilities are such that World War III is not an abstract concept. It, it is something which is absolutely real, but you will only, we will only find out how real it is when it happens. But the, the, the accumulation of advanced weapon systems, nuclear but also chemical, biological weapons, climatic warfare, these bona fide weapons of mass destruction have reached a point where in fact they could be used to destroy humanity and lead the world to the unthinkable. And there's so many scientific studies to that effect. It's, it's not, it's, it's based, if, if you, if you uh, look at, well, I, I just got a contribution this morning from Helen Caldicott, who is a well-known uh, author. She's, uh, I've known her for years and and I, I asked her to write up uh, a piece on what's happening in the military bases where they, where they uh, store the, the weapons to be deployed in the case of a nuclear war. And she had documented this on a, at an earlier period that many of these people are either drunk or they're on drugs, uh, they, they're taking LSD, uh, or they're, they're simply uh, you know, not at work, and so on and so forth. And the, in fact, this is documented from military sources. And bear in mind, it's very important, apart from the fact that Trump says, my button is bigger than yours, there's always the possibility of, of mistakes, technological mistakes. I, I, I run a website, and I can tell you I have glitches very frequently, practically every day. Okay? Now imagine what kind, what a glitch would imply with regard to the usage of nuclear weapons. And there's another, I mean, those are technical mistakes. And then there are so-called political mistakes. And political mistakes, let me elaborate on that. Those who decide on the use of nuclear weapons are unaware of the consequences of their actions. Why? 
because within the military, there is an in within not only within the military, within the political apparatus, uh, there is an internal process of propaganda, which is not intended for the broader public. Uh, it's called top off, top officials. That's a military concept. And what the top officials at all very high levels of government, military, business, are led to believe is that you can win a nuclear war, one, and two, that those weapons are harmless to civilians because the explosion is underground. I'm quoting from the Pentagon. And now it's a little bit like relabeling a pack of cigarettes. The more usable tactical nuclear weapon, low yield, one third to 12 times a Hiroshima bomb, is, quote, harmless to civilians because the explosion is underground. These are bunker buster bombs. But how many feet underground do they actually go? I checked the data. It, it's the size of this building. Uh, and, uh, of course, the rubble comes up, and they don't even talk about radioactive fallout anymore. Okay? They don't talk about it. And so um, that propaganda is intended for people who take decisions. And now, does Mad Dog Mattis know what the impact of nuclear weapons is? It's, it's a bit of harakiri because taking that decision ultimately also kills U.S. foreign policy and, and the U.S. elites, and not to mention uh, the, the corporations which are recipients of $1.2 trillion uh, you know, defense contracts to develop new nuclear weapons. They'll never be able to cash in on their profits unless they do it before. I'm being a bit cryptic, but the thing is that there's a certain that it's a diabolic, a diabolic agenda, it's based on lies, and then, then the lie becomes the truth, okay? And when the lie becomes the truth, there's no moving backwards. And that is what is happening. The lie becomes the truth. Peace, war becomes peace, and peace becomes, what we understand as peace is a conspiracy theory, okay? Um, so that in that sense we are living in what I'd call an inquisitorial environment because it's not so much even the question of obfuscating the lies. It is heralding the lie as truth, unquestionable truth, a bit like the, the witches during the Spanish Inquisition, okay? Or the, the French Inquisition was even worse. But that's another matter. But we, we look back at that. And is it, how is it they didn't understand uh, you know, the logic behind this? But uh, again, it's a very similar logic to what prevails today. And then we have terrorists coming in, attacking Western cities. Now, it just so happens that all those terrorists happen to be on the radar of the police and the intelligence. Then they find the passports somewhere, you know, on the road or in the, in the car or in the rubble. Uh, and then not a single one of these 
terrorists actually survives. They're, never, they're suspects, they get shot dead, there's never any investigation. And then, referring to the Brussels attacks, it just so happens that the footage of the video passed when they attacked the airport, that was a couple of years back. Um, what footage did they take? Moscow airport. They didn't have the footage for what really happened there. So they play around with the images. Now, I, nobody will dispute that. We've published that. Those are fake images and fake videos. But in the case of Brussels, what was quite striking is that in the morning, there was an attack at the airport. You, you remember those events. There's an attack at the airport, and then it was broadcast on the news, and they used the footage of Moscow Airport. I happen to know that airport. Um, and then in the afternoon, there was an attack in the metro station. And they took the metro station of Minsk, Belarus, which happened a few years earlier. So in other words, the whole, uh, there was never any questioning, how is it? I can understand that there may be one fake video uh, in the morning, but the, both videos were fake, okay? See, so that's the logic. We, we, have, we have these events which are there to intimidate the population, and, and, and then, of course, uh, and to endorse, and to endorse the narrative, the underlying narrative of the war on terrorism, okay? They have to believe it. And for them to believe it, there have to be events in their daily lives. People have to be intimidated. And that's what's happening. They're intimidated, um, and they see, of course, Muslims as enemies of the state and so on. And then, of course, there's a vast campaign uh, of um, Islamophobia, and then you ask yourself, why? Well, the answer is quite simple. But almost 70% of oil and natural gas happens to lie, I'm talking about the reserves, I'm talking, not talking about tar sands, happens to lie in Muslim countries. And the, the area from, let's say, the the tip of Saudi Arabia up to the Caspian Sea Basin, largely Muslim countries, is more than 60% of the global uh, reserves of crude oil. Now, if those lands had been inhabited by Buddhists, we would be involved in, in, in a campaign against the Buddhists, obviously. You know, we're going after the Muslims because they happened, they happened to own the oil. We are in a situation where, where people who decide are actually war criminals, okay? I, Obama is a war criminal. By now, I think Trump is also a war criminal, okay? If you bomb, if you bomb a country illegally and kill civilians, you're a war criminal. If you if you impose a naval embargo on food and medicine, which is triggering a, at least a, a million people starving in Yemen, that's a, that's a war crime. And that's quite deliberate. 
There's the danger of a million people dying in Yemen because there is a naval blockade where the U.S. Navy is there. They're not letting any, any ships in so that the country is cut off from the rest of the world, doesn't get medicine, doesn't get food, and is involved in a, and is the subject of, I would say, U.S.-led bombings implemented by one of its proxies, Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia and the Emirates. But U.S. advisors all over the place, and of course, special forces, Green Berets, are, are in Yemen. Okay? Now, we are led by... We, we, have, we are led by war criminals. And I, I'm using the international definition of, of war crimes. And we also have a media which is complicit in this agenda, which is also responsible for war crimes. Propaganda, war propaganda is an illegal act under Nuremberg. And... Uh, if we look at the timeline in the post-9-11 era, I think it's very clear, of course, that the 9-11 attacks were absolutely fundamental in setting the stage, well, first of all, setting the stage for the global war on terrorism. Uh, what happened? And that's where the media comes in, because they, they fail to to underscore the political lies. At 11 o'clock in the morning, George Tenet, that's on the morning of 9-11, George Tenet states Al-Qaeda's behind it. Where did he have the evidence? No, no, uh, there was no investigation which had been carried out. Two, two hours later, at 11 in the morning, I checked the news, George Tenet says, yes, Al-Qaeda's behind it. And then at nine in the evening, they declare war on Afghanistan. And the following day, NATO uh, invoking Article 5 of the, of the Washington Agreement, of their, of their articles, etc., uh, then uh, declares war on Afghanistan. Well, in fact, it was confirmed at a later date, but nonetheless, they say one member of NATO is attacked under the doctrine of collective security. All members of NATO were, uh, have been attacked. That was the justification. Now, nobody knew about that. They, di they didn't really understand the logic. Uh, Afghanistan was identified as a state sponsor of terrorism. Al-Qaeda was responsible. And then the day after, in Brussels, they, they invoke Article 5, and they say, we are now at war with Afghanistan. And then on the 7th of October, they invade Afghanistan. That's less than a month, okay? Now, there's several lies in that, in that, in that narrative. One, there was no proof it was Al-Qaeda. Apart from the fact that Osama bin Laden was in a hospital bed in Rawalpindi, a military hospital under the, under the auspices of the, of the Pakistani military, he had a kidney problem, and he was admitted on the 10th. Now, was he actually, I'm being facetious, was he coordinating the 9-11 attacks from his handheld, you know, uh, in the hospital? And he was then, and then Rumsfeld said, we don't know where he is. 
It's like looking for a needle in the stack of hay. And in fact, they knew all along where he was. Okay? And with modern technology, all you have to do is to, to slash a few uh, uh, you know, pieces of metal into his body and you can use your GPS to go after him. Uh, those technologies were available in 2001. But again, a whole series of lies. Now, the, the other big lie, when the war broke out in Afghanistan, is uh, you, don't you, don't, you cannot, under any circumstances, prepare a major theater war thousands of miles away in 28 days. Impossible. Okay? A war of that magnitude takes months and months and months and sometimes years to prepare. But there wasn't a single military analyst who actually had the courage of saying, well, how come they managed to do that so quickly after 9-11 and have it, you know, have the Air Force there going in? Um, because every, I mean, uh, Ed took several months to prepare this meeting, right? <laughs> okay. <laughs> how, how many months have it, has it taken to prepare this meeting? Can you imagine a war uh, run by the Pentagon with all its complexities and they do it in 28 days? My name is Michael Welch and you're listening to the Global Research News Hour, airing on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States. The show is podcast on the website globalresearch.ca. Today, as part of our summer series, we're airing a talk by Professor Michel Chosodovsky, presented June 8, 2018, entitled The Globalization of War, based on his book of the same name. This talk, along with other Global Research NewsHour broadcasts, are available for download at the website globalresearch.ca. Here's more from Professor Chosodovsky's address. So, that is where... I think the new, that is where the perceptions of the public start to, to evolve. Uh, and that's where 9-11 truth and 9-11 lies play a crucial role. People are led to believe that they are threatened uh, by terrorists, Islamic terrorists, uh, there's a process of intimidation which takes place. In mili the military concept behind that is called the massive casualty producing event. And it, it's, a, it's a military concept. And it says the following, if you want to mobilize people's concerns and, and so on, uh, you have to have dead people. You have to have casualties. And a massive casualty-producing event has the effect of creating, quote, a useful wave of indignation. It's a, I'm quoting a Pentagon document. It's from Operations Northwoods, which was a secret plan to, uh, to have a false flag in relation to Cuba, killing people in the Miami Cuban community, and then there would be a useful wave of indignation. You can check that document. But the, the useful wave of indignation uh, after 9-11, well, I, I wouldn't necessarily use that term in relation to 9-11, but nonetheless, without 9-11, they wouldn't have had 
the pretext and the justification to invade Afghanistan. The Taliban government actually approached the U.S. State Department twice and said, we, if you provide us some preliminary evidence uh, concerning Osama bin Laden, we, will, uh, we, we are prepared to deliver him to the U.S. justice system. Okay? So there is the number one terrorist who was the object of a whole series of, uh, well, the, the saga went on. But of course, if you, if you arrest the, one num the number one terrorist, you're left with a, a hole in, in, the, in your narrative. There can't be a global war on ter against terrorism if you've arrested Osama bin Laden. Okay? So uh, th that was made on two occasions through diplomatic channels. It's a government. And, th and they said, if you want us to deliver him, we will do it. And then George W. Bush said, we don't negotiate with terrorists. Okay? So it was a bit a non secretur, circular type of thing. But the fact of the matter is that war was, uh, was instigated with very little opposition. Uh, people were so shocked by what happened on, on the sep September 11, they didn't uh, want to even express their critique and say, well, Afghanistan didn't attack America. We didn't see any jet fighters in the, street, in the skies of New York with Afghani flag there. No, we didn't. What's the proof? Tell us. And that would have been the, a normal response to the statements made at, at, at the Atlantic Council on September 12, where they said, no, we're going to invade Afghanistan because Afghanistan has, has attacked a member state of the, of the Atlantic Alliance. That was the discourse. And we were misinformed because none of this actually was reported in any meaningful way by, by the corporate media. Now, let me, let me give you another big lie about which was not covered. We've covered it, and nobody really knows about it. Uh, there was a lot of discussion on what was called uh, the Downing Street memos, okay? I won't go back on the Downing Street memos, but there was something far more serious, and it had to do with... Uh, with Colin Powell's presentation to the United Nations in early February 2001. And uh, for people who recall that, Colin Powell came in and said, this is a very authoritative report by British intelligence, blah, 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 okay? And he said, weapons of mass destruction, and then uh, he quoted from the report, etc., 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 and British intelligence uh, provided us the, with this report, and that was the basis upon which uh, the war on Iraq uh, was justified. Uh, and there was very little questioning of where this intelligence report came from, although we knew, because a professor at Cambridge, Glenn Rangwala, read the report, and he said, it looks familiar. And he started then looking at the quotations and discovered 
that the report had been copied and pasted off the internet. It was plagiarized. And he managed and he proved it. It was an incredible um, achievement because there were certain even typos in the... In the in, he would, went back to the original sources and in fact they copied it from a PhD uh, document which was being presented in, in, you know, in California. And so that report was aired on Channel 4. Uh, a Guardian, I think, did publish excerpts. We published, I was in touch with him, we published the whole document. Then, but it was not used as a means to question the legitimacy of Colin Powell's lies, statements, at the United Nations Security Council. Okay? Nobody stood up, uh, came up and said, well, according to Glenn Rangwala, you plagiarized. That report is, is... And that report wasn't prepared by British intelligence. It was prepared by public relations officers in the office of Tony Blair. Okay? Now, that was one element of the war in Iraq which very few people know about, not be because essentially it wasn't covered. Okay? It was, simply wasn't covered. The global war on terrorism is fake. Al-Qaeda is a U.S. intelligence construct. We're presenting war as a responsibility to protect and, and a, 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 a guat. That's the global war on terrorism. Um, and then, of course, we have the doctrine of preemptive warfare. Now, preemptive warfare was developed in 2001 and it, it, was, it, it was the Nuclear Posture Review, uh, and it pertained precisely to these tactical nuclear weapons. But the notion of preemptive nuclear war is that you use nuclear weapons to defend yourself, and you, that you actually go and bomb a country with nuclear weapons uh, as a means to defending yourself, even if that country doesn't even have nuclear weapons. And I can tell you that Libya was one of the first countries to be which had been, according to Pentagon documents, they had envisaged using tactical B-61 bombs, buster bunker bombs with nuclear warheads against Libya. The project was abandoned. But it was announced by the, by, the, by the Pentagon. That was during the Clinton administration. Okay? And again, then you had the preemptive nuclear war, which says, and preemptive war in general. Okay? You attack a country to prevent it from attacking you. Okay? But of course, America is situated several thousand miles from where that country happens to be. Uh, so this, this uh, again, this doctrine um, is, um, becomes embedded in, in U.S. foreign policy. But I should also mention that if we start doing a little bit of background history, the, the doctrine 
that we're experiencing in the post-9-11 period has its roots essentially in the early years after World War II. The first nuclear weapon was dropped on Hiroshima on August 6, 1945. And Harry Truman made the statement on August, on August 9th when the second bomb was dropped. It was a long speech. He was coming back from the Potsdam Conference in Germany. But he said, I quote, the world will note that the first atomic bomb was dropped on Hiroshima, a military base, and that was because we wanted to save the lives of innocent civilians, unquote. Now that doctrine of, of collateral damage has been persistent, but in fact what we notice in U.S. military doctrine, even going back to the later period, uh, the, the last year of World War II, uh, where you had these massive um, uh, use of firebombs and, and the bombings of German cities. They were civilian targets exclusively, okay? And the same thing in Japan, exclusively civilian targets. Uh, and then uh, that doctrine ultimately then prevailed in the, in, the, in the early 50s when you had the Korean War. The, the massive casualties um, which occurred from 1950 to 53, where 30% of the population of North Korea was killed. Now, from their standpoint, standpoint, the United States is a threat to their national security. Of course, Americans presented the other way around. North Korea is a threat to our security. Well, we happen to have killed 30% of its population, okay? That's about the size of California. No, that would be 20%, 60 million people out of more than 300 million. But I, but Bear in mind, the U.S. military actually acknowledges, because if you look at a quotation of General Curtis LeMay, who says, we must have killed what? In the course of 18 months of bombing, what? 20% of the population and the totality of the cities, 98% of the cities. The crimes committed to, uh, uh, in relation to the Korean people are uh, um, uh, uh, there's no other precedent in history. Okay? If you look at World War II, the, the, the countries which lost the largest share of their population were, were Soviet Union, Germany, and Yugoslavia, uh, primarily, those three countries. Uh, but we're not talking about, when, in, as far as Russia was, uh, Soviet Union is concerned, it was about 10% of the population. But there we're talking about 30% of the population. And, uh, uh, and then, of course, today when we, we discuss denuclearization, we fail to understand what this country went through and what it went through in the aftermath of the Korean War, where every single year it is threatened by, uh, by nuclear weapons. Every single year um, since 1950. Uh, and um, 
I should also mention another thing, is that already in 1945, the United States had formulated a plan to bomb, that was when the United States and the Soviet Union were allies on the, on the, the 15th of September 1945, uh, barely a, f a few weeks after the end of World War II, they uh, released, it, it's a declassified document, they had a plan to bomb 204 cities across the Soviet Union. And that plan was formulated in 1942. It wasn't formulated during the Cold War. It was first formulated in 1942. It was released in 1945. And then they had another uh, set of, uh, of plans which go to the 60s, but then we're in the Cold War era. Um, well, that's another matter. I don't want to get into it. But the, the, the thing is that the nuclear doctrine which, uh, which emerges goes back to Truman and the so-called Truman Doctrine. But now, um, if you look at, because next week, of course, it's the summit in Singapore. I, I'm leaving, incidentally, after this event, I'm off to South Korea, okay? Precisely for events which are held um, in, uh, which are held in relation to that summit uh, in different, well, in, they're different venues, but one is in the, in the South Korean parliament, uh, where they at least have the courtesy of inviting a conspiracy theorist. But um, what I'd like to, to say, uh, to put this thing in perspective, North Korea has about 10 nuclear bombs. I, I haven't looked at the most recent data. It might be more than that. Okay, the United States at 4,000. But Belgium has five times more nuclear weapons than North Korea. There's a whole series of European countries. We never mention them. They have nuclear weapons, okay? They have nuclear weapons. And I'm talking about Belgium, Holland, Germany, Italy, and Turkey. Turkey has 90. I think, no, now, now they're less, about 50, okay? But I, I mean, I have the figures on this. Uh, it, it, in other words, and, and, and it's, it's amply documented. Uh, yes, Belgium had 20, at least double what, what North Korea has. They have B-6111 tactical nuclear weapons. So there you have five non-nuclear, so-called non-nuclear states, which have uh, nuclear weapons made in America under national command. That m means that under international law they are nuclear weapon states, even if they don't produce the nuclear weapons. Now you have the situation of Germany. Now Germany is, is, is a nuclear weapon state as well. A, it has under national command uh, tactical nuclear weapons, B61, and at the same time, through its, its um, partnership with Aerospatial Matra, uh, and which ultimately then, and Deutsche Aerospace, which ultimately then merges into a new company called AADES, European Air Defense System Corporation, Germany produces nuclear weapons for the French Navy. Okay, that's all right. So the French are, are official nuclear weapon state, 
but it, the the weapons, the nuclear bombs, are produced in a in a you know in a binational partnership, but which it's a it's a Franco-German company, okay? But nobody points their finger at Germany or Italy or Belgium or or, or the Netherlands, not to mention Israel, which has some 400 nuclear weapons, okay? And Japan most probably has nuclear weapons capabilities. Um, so there we are, a small country in, in Northeast Asia, uh, which um, chose to develop uh, nuclear weapons after having been threatened with nuclear war for more than half a century, because that came rather late. Um, they are now pinpointed. Uh, they are, incidentally, North Korea is the only nuclear weapons state that voted in favor of the motion of the United Nations General Assembly presented by the International Campaign Against Nuclear Weapons. They voted in favor of that campaign. Um, the media will never even mention it. And the countries that voted, there were several countries abstained, including China, India, and Pakistan. They abstained. Uh, and the rest of the gang, including Russia, voted against. But North Korea, that was their policy, is they are against, um, they are against nuclear weapons, but they, are, they, they have developed nuclear weapons as a means of deterrence. Now, what, what I don't think much is going to come um, of this agreement, of this uh, summit next week, um, there will be, a, of course, a show, but I don't think that the North Koreans will actually um, accept to denuclearize without receiving something in, in exchange. Now, there, there's a tremendous uh, dichotomy or, or imbalance because you have 4,000 nuclear weapons plus $1.2 trillion allocated to new nuclear weapons on the one hand, and then you have a country which has about 10 nuclear bombs with limited delivery capabilities. But again, the real threat to global security is the United States of America, particularly in view of this, the, the fact that it, it is spending billions and billions of taxpayers' money uh, for the development of its weapons arsenal. Now, let me conclude and, and maybe raise some of the economic and social dimensions, how this war economy ultimately, uh, how, how this war economy leads to certain restructuring of the global economy. Uh, the two most dynamic sectors, and we're living under a neoliberal agenda, the two most dynamic economic sectors of the global economy, guess what? Weapons production on the one hand and luxury goods on the other. Luxury goods including entertainment, hotels, travel and leisure, infrastructure, and so on and so forth, which is geared 
to an upper income market. Why? Because the, the new world order is characterized by extensive austerity measures, uh, neoliberal phasing out of social programs, which are there essentially also to, to uh, free the funds which finance the war economy. Okay? You can't spend $1.2 trillion on nuclear weapons and then at the same time finance your health services. Okay? So that there is, there is a, a fiscal structure underlying this. So the, the weapons industry is very, very prosperous. It's doing very well. And then it creates also corporate lobby groups which are pushing, of course, to, uh, to get these contracts. I'm, I'm convinced that Lockheed Martin doesn't necessarily want to blow up the planet. They're, they're not interested in that. They're interested in getting the money. Now, if, if you had a government which were committed to peace, they would then say, OK, Lockheed Martin, uh, we will fund your civilian aircraft. But in fact, they're doing exactly the opposite. Boeing has lost its uh, contracts with Iran, delivery of, of, uh, you know, of civilian aircraft. But that doesn't matter because Boeing is also producing jet, jet fighters and, and uh, missiles and so on. And the whole, actually, the whole process underlying nuclear weapons has been privatized. I, I, I don't have time to get into that. It goes back to a secret meeting which was held in, at, um, at the Strategic Command Headquarters in 2000 and, 2003, I believe, where the private sector was invited in and they established the doctrine for the expansion of the nuclear weapons industry. But again, uh, to get back to the economic and social dimensions, we are living uh, the most serious economic crisis in world history, um, where vast sectors of the population are driven into beyond poverty, into total despair. Uh, and this is not due to a lack of resources by any means. It is essentially due to the fact that you have uh, that you have a, a process of, of uh, economic uh, expansion which is ultimately uh, strictly based on profit, which destroys the environment. Um, if we look at farming, it's the whole issue of the ge uh, genetically modified seeds. It's the reproduction of the agricultural cycle. The agricultural cycle is, is dead in many countries. Uh, and uh, when you don't reproduce food, uh, or when, when the, the reproduction of food depends on, uh, uh, you know, on the uh, authority of Baya Monsanto, um, where farmers can't reproduce their, their seeds, there is a very serious problem. And that is tied into the military agenda. Um, there are many examples of, of this happening around the world. India, uh, where you see Indian farmers committing suicide. Ethiopia, the whole structure of biodiversity has been destroyed as a result of the influx of genetically modified seeds. And that happened after a US engineered war. Okay? 
So all these things, in, 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 in essence, are interconnected. And, uh, and I think it points, again, to the need to have a very broad-based, very broad-based mass movements. Um, it's not a simple matter. Uh, and, I, I, and maybe we can discuss it uh, later on, but uh, David is going to, to focus on that. But we need def desperately to, to rebuild a mass movement which which is not dependent on corporate financing, which is the norm today, okay? I, I've been, I've been, I'm on the blacklist of the World Social Forum, and then I, when I was at a, I was at a conference in, in Brazil, which was on the invitation of the, the landless farmers, okay? And, uh, and then we were discussing the World Social Forum, and I said, you can't expect to be able to, to take on a progressive stance against the Rockefellers when the Rockefellers are paying for your, for your expenses, okay? But, I, I mean, that's true. You look at who's funding uh, all these, you know, all these NGOs. It's Soros, it's Rockefeller, it's the MacArthur Foundation, it's the NED, and so on. So, obviously, you can't... If you say, well, I'm, ag I'm against uh, uh, U.S. support for Al-Qaeda, they, they cut your money off immediately, okay? So there's a, there's, a, there's a whole load of people there, of leftist progressives, getting money from foundations, and that in itself is a means to, in fact destroying the mass movement altogether. We let them protest, but within certain norms and certain realms. We have prog progressive intellectuals, but many of those progressive intellectuals are supportive of U.S. foreign policy. And, uh, and that is something um, which is absolutely fundamental if we want to rebuild uh, an anti-war movement in Canada. We have to start we have to be independent, we have to be sovereign, and we are not taking the money from corporations or governments, because that would tie us down. Thank you very much. We just heard a presentation by Professor Michelle Chosodovsky in the city of Regina, Saskatchewan on June 8th, 2008, on the topic of the globalization of war. The talk was based on his 2015 book, the Globalization of War, America's Long War on Humanity, which is available for purchase at the site globalresearch.ca. The audio of the talk was recorded by videographer Paul S. Graham. The unabridged video recording can be found on the Paul S. Graham YouTube channel. Music was by Purple Planet Music. More selections are available at the site www.purple-planet.com. The Global Research News Hour will return next week with more special summer programming. My name is Michael Welch.